um, with the message from God as we look at his word. We started last week with Nehemiah, looking at Nehemiah as we start the series. Um, we looked at the introduction of Nehemiah and the historical background. So I will not, um, I will not labor so much on the history um, this morning, but I want to take you through Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1 to 11. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1 to 11, and we will look at here a heart for God's people. A heart for God's people. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1 to 11, I read from the ESV, follow me as we hear God's word. This is God's word, let us hear him. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Akaliah, of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the Citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there is in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who, who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you today, night, before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the, the, the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you've commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, our Lord and God, we love you. We desire to hear from you. As we open the scriptures in Nehemiah chapter 1, we pray that our hearts will be opened to you, that you will speak to us, that in speaking to us we will bear fruits, some 30, some 50, some 100 fold, but Lord, that we would be a people that bear fruit, a people that are characterized by a love for you, a love for your word, a love for your people. 
In the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Judge Bernard Shaw, in his play, The Devil's Disciple, puts into the mouth of Reverend Anthony Anderson, one of the characters in the play, who speaks about the essence of inhumanity. He says that the worst sin toward our fellow creatures is not that we hate them, but to be indifferent to them. That is the essence of inhumanity. Not to hate, but to be indifferent. Not to care at all. This statement certainly summarizes what Jesus taught in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right? In Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 27, where the clergyman passed by that man who needed help and, and the good Samaritan was the one who, who, who came alongside him and helped him and showed him compassion. And, and this story rebukes all those who fold their arms complacently and smile compassionately and say somewhat sarcastically, ask me if I care. Nehemiah was the kind of person who cared. He cared about the traditions of the past and the needs of the present. He cared about the, the hopes for the future. He cared about his heritage, his ancestral city, and the glory of his God. He is characterized, as we, we, we look at this first chapter, by deep compassion for his people, deep care. Indeed, the title of the sermon, A Heart for God's People, fits Nehemiah's character. We see in these verses, in these 11 verses we just read, two identifying marks of a heart for God's people. Two identifying marks of a heart for God's people. First of all, a heart for God's people is identified by care for the welfare of God's people. Care for the welfare of God's people. And we see that in verses 1 to, to verse 4. The, the, the first four verses introduces us to Nehemiah, the man that is, is, is the subject matter this morning. He is identified as the son of Hakalia. Uh, th this identification is probably to identify him as a specific Nehemiah and not to confuse him with others with the same name. As you will notice that there are many who had the name Nehemiah. So uh, as the, the writer compa compiles this document and, and he takes the, the memoirs of Nehemiah, he shows us that this is a specific Nehemiah that we are talking about. This, this Nehemiah is in Susa the Citado, as we see in verse 1. This was the place that was used during winter by Persian kings. Remember that the, the kingdom that ruled at, at that time was the, the Persian kingdom. And so during winter, they used another place to keep warm, which was Susa the Citado. In other words, this tells us a bit about the profile of Nehemiah, that he served the, royal, uh, uh, the, the Persian royalty. In verse 11b, he tells us that he was cupbearer to the king. I'll not explain that this morning, but we'll explore it more uh, when we look at chapter 2. 
This placed him, in other words, in a comfortable and privileged position. He was set for life. He had a good job. He, he had good comfort. And, 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 and this puts us in a position to understand how what comes next turns his world upside down. It, it changes his whole life. His brother, Hanani, and some of the men of Judah pay him a visit one day. And they come to him. We, we, we don't know the, the purpose of their visit. Uh, but probably news has been spreading about what is happening in Jerusalem. Remember 140 years ago, and Nebuchadnezzar uh, besieged Jerusalem and, and destroyed it. But later, 70 years, uh, we, we see Zerubbabel going back, but he fails. We see uh, um, Ezra going back, and Ezra tries to rebuild, but he fails as well. And so the news of Ezra's failure to, to rebuild the city is spreading around. There, there is a lot of, of, of dis discouragement that is going around. And Nehemiah, as his brothers uh, his brother and the men of Judah come to pay him a visit. He is concerned about the condition of the Jews. He, he shows deep con concern and he inquires about their condition, or the, the condition of those who, who survived the exile and, and the condition of the city of Jerusalem. He, he wants to know how things are going. He's not self-centered. He, he does not want to tell them about his achievements when they arrive and, and tell them about how much he has climbed the, 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 the political ladder in Persia. His deep concern is for what is going on in Jerusalem. The report that he hears is not good news. The, the report that they give to him is, is not good news at all. In verse 3, they say to him, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. Imagine as these words enter the ears of Nehemiah. They say the wall is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. What Ezra tried to do was was stopped, but not only was it stopped, the enemies came to destroy the work that had already started. It is in great trouble. I want you to see here how the sovereign hand of God is behind this encounter. How God is orchestrating the events of history as Nehemiah encounters his brother and they speak about this particular uh, uh, topic, the, this particular uh, event that are happening in Jerusalem. We, we, we see the sovereign hand of God in all these things. The, the hand of God is controlling the course of history and calling Nehemiah to enter the events of the history of Israel. God uses the, the, the devastating condition of the Jews and the condition of the city of Israel to call Nehemiah. His concern for the people of the city is the first step that leads him to fulfill the calling to rebuild and reform Israel. Uh, usually, whenever our eyes are open to see a need, 
we, we must recognize that it is God calling us to avail ourselves to meet that need. It is unfortunate that in our day, Christians are able to see where the, problem, where, where, where the problems are, but are unwilling to see how they can be used of God to resolve those problems, to deal with those needs. You see, we have grown so accustomed to being problem detectors without being solution providers. We find it easy to see what the problem is, but we don't see that our eyes being open to see the problem, it is God nudging us, it is God calling us, it is God opening our hearts to meet that need, to meet uh, that problem, to, to, to be the solution in that area. We, we, we don't see how when we see the needs in people's lives, when we are open to see the needs in people's life, God is not calling us to just look at them in compassion and say, ah, shame. We, we must realize how God is drawing us to, to, to meet those needs, to, 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 to respond to, 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 to people in compassion. The problem of, of, of being problem detectors and not being solution providers is the problem of middle-class Christianity. And I want you to listen to me carefully. You see, middle-class Christianity is driven by consumerism. They treat the church as if it's a restaurant. They, they look at the menu of what the church can offer and, 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 and from there decide whether to, to be part of the church or not. Does it have a children's ministry? Check. Does it have good preaching? Check. Does it have good singing? Check. Does it have youth ministry? Check. Does it have young adults? Check. And if it happens that it lacks one of the above, we move on to a church that has all these things. We never think at that particular time, is my concern for this ministry God's way of calling me to serve in this area? It never occurs to us that God has placed that need before you so that you can serve in that area or help those who are serving in that area. At the heart of that insensitivity to God's leading is a desire to be served rather than to serve. You see, the, the, the testimony of Scripture exposes that attitude as an unchristlike attitude. Mark chapter, four, Mark chapter 10 verse 45 tells us that even the Son of Man, even Jesus Christ, did not come to be served, but to serve. And Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 23, Matthew 23, verse 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant. What defines greatness in the Christian context is servanthood. You see, brothers and sisters, we cannot claim Jesus Christ as Lord without claiming his attitude. The attitude that even though he was equal with God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself a servant. 
We, we cannot claim to, to, to be followers of Christ if we do not claim to have the mind of Christ. Jesus demonstrated the servanthood attitude in John chapter 13 by washing the feet of his disciples. And he says in verses 14 to 15, If I then your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. You see, to be, an to be a disciple of Christ is to be an imitator of Christ. Anything outside of that, brothers and sisters, is a gross misrepresentation of what it means to be a Christian. The God, little letter G, small letter G, the God of middle class Christianity is comfort and convenience. We, we, we idolize comfort. We idolize convenience. Serving can be uncomfortable. It can inconvenience you. Meeting the needs of others, coming alongside others, can be uncomfortable. It can inconvenience you. Cross-cultural interactions can be uncomfortable. They can be inconvenient. But God is calling us. God is calling us to put our interest aside and look to the interests of others. To, to have selflessness that displays that we are gospel-shaped, gospel-transformed, gospel-changed, and we are given a gospel lens to see each other, to see the world around us, to consider what Christ is doing in our midst. Raymond Brown observes that although Nehemiah had a, high responsible, a highly responsible job in a secure environment in a fine Persian city noted for its opulence and prosperity, magnificent buildings and, and spacious gardens, he is not re remotely preoccupied with himself. He is not trying to protect so much his comfort and, and his convenience. His heart is towards his people. He is concerned. He has a deep care for the welfare of his people. We, we, we see this in Nehemiah's response to the condition of the Jews and, and the walls in Jerusalem. He is not indifferent. Right? He, he is not indifferent about what is happening. His response displays his deep care for his people. Look at verse 4. He says, as soon as I heard these words, as soon as I heard the report about what is happening to the people in Jerusalem, what is happening to the city itself, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days. And I continued in fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The, the news moved him. They, they saddened him. They, they broke his heart. We can see in his response his deep care 
for the welfare of God's people. The, the, the news drive him to his knees to seek the face of God on behalf of Israel. He, he is fasting and, and, and praying. He is putting his comforts aside to be concerned about what is happening in Jerusalem. His conveniences aside. And it is here that we see a second thing, a, a second identifying mark about a heart for God's people. An identifying mark about a heart for God's people is seen in, a, in heartfelt prayer on behalf of God's people. Heartfelt prayer on behalf of God's people. And see, we, we, we see this in verses 5 to 11. Verses 5 to 11. The, the, the third stanza of the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, reminds us of the privilege we have when we are burdened, when we are troubled by things that are going on around us to, to go to the Lord in prayer. It reminds us that we have the Lord to go to. It says, are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And we see Nehemiah weighed down and burdened by the news that he heard about Jerusalem, about the people in Jerusalem. And then and, and the next thing that he does, he, he takes it to the Lord in prayer. You see, when we take it to the Lord in prayer, we are essentially declaring our dependence on God. Prayer is a declaration of dependence. We are confessing to God that if he does not act, we are left to our own devices. We are left hopeless. We are confessing to God that we rely fully on him. Nehemiah's response to the condition of the Jews in Jerusalem is with a prayer and fasting to God. In verse 5 to 11, it gives us a summary of the prayer that he brought he brought before God. And I want you to take time with me and observe the characteristic, characteristics of this prayer that Nehemiah prays. I'm, 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 I'm going to do it briefly. I'm going to give you six characteristics of, of this prayer. First of all, it is God-centered prayer. It is a God-centered prayer. It is quite interesting that although the problem at hand, that the thing that gripped his heart is what is happening in Jerusalem, but his prayer is first and foremost occupied with the adoration of God. His mind is occupied with adoring and glorifying God. When he comes in the presence of God, he focuses on God. He focuses on the fact that God is sovereign. He's the God of heaven in verse 6 in verse 5. He focuses on the power of God. He's the great and awesome God. On the faithfulness of God. He's the God who keeps covenant. And steadfast love with those who love him. And keep his commandments. He, he focuses on the fact that God hears. He says, let your ear, in verse, verse, verse 6, let your ear be attentive. He focuses on the fact that God sees. He says, your eyes open. To hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you. 
he focuses on the glory of God and on the on the promises of God, on the on the on the attributes of God that God is sovereign, God is faithful, God is all powerful, God hears, God sees. We can see that as as the, this prayer that is God centered is a prayer that makes one confident, right? That when we start reminding ourselves of the promises of God, when we start reminding ourselves of the attributes of God, in that moment we, we become so bold because of the God that we are praying to, to bring our prayers, our concerns in His sight. It is when we focus on God that our confidence grows that what we are praying about is not too hard for God to answer. Secondly, it is a prayer of humility. And Nehemiah has a sound understanding of who God is. He, 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 he knows himself in relation to God. In verse 6 and verse 11, he refers to himself as God's servant. Uh, there's a sense of humility in, in, in his attitude. He, he doesn't come as one who makes demands with God, but one who is dependent on God. He, he, he doesn't come as one declaring and decreeing or with, as one who is naming it and claiming it. But he comes with an attitude of humility before God. He recognized that God is the one who answers prayer out of his mercies. He does not answer prayer because we, 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 have, we, we have twisted his hand with our words. He does not answer prayer because we have cornered him with our many prayers. He answers prayer because he's the God who's, who's full of mercy and the God who has steadfast love. A love that is unending. A love that is unconditional. He, he comes with an attitude of humility. Thirdly, it is a prayer of honesty. A prayer of honesty. He is honest before God. The, the report that came, that was brought to Nehemiah, uh, about the state of Jerusalem is, is concerned, you'll notice, with, with how people are experiencing reproach and shame from their enemies. But when Nehemiah goes to God, he, he hardly mentions that. Because he discerns the real problem. That Israel is in the state that she is in, because of her sin against God. He, he recognizes that sin will lead you to a life of shame and reproach. The heart of this prayer is, is the confession that is found in verses 6 to verse 9. That there is a sorrow for sin that has brought Israel so low and debased. There is no attempt to excuse the actions of the people of Israel. He, he recognizes and acknowledges that the sin of Israel is the rope they used to hang themselves. Verses 6 to verse 
7, 6b to verse 7. He says, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Notice what he's saying. He says, our sin was against you. He, he does not only confess the, the sins of Israel, he confesses his sin and the sin of his generation as well. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly, L listen to this again, against you. And, and have not kept the commandments, the, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. In, in other words, he's saying that we dishonored your word. We disregarded your word. When your word spoke something, we did the opposite. Our sin is an indication that we have, re, re, we have dishonored the word of God. We reject the word of God. Sin is a rejection of the commandments of God. It is a rejection of the goodness of God. It is a rejection of the holiness of God and the faithfulness of God. You see, the Bible is clear that at the root of all global and personal problems is sin. Why are there wars and terrorist attacks in the world? It is because of sin. Why is there famine and disease? It is because of sin. Why are governments and businesses riddled with greed and corruption? It is because of sin. Why is the mission task of the church not fulfilled? It is because of sin. On a personal level, why do couples argue and have problems communicating in marriage? It is because of sin. Why, why do kids from Christian homes rebel against God and their parents? It is because of sin. Whenever the problem, uh, whatever the problem, you can trace its roots back to sin, either to the original sin of Adam and Eve or to directly to the sins of the people with the problems. If God is going to use us to help alleviate any great need, we need to keep clear in our focus that at the root of the problem is human sin. Fourthly, this prayer is a prayer of faith. It is a prayer of faith. Nehemiah recalls the promise that God made through Moses uh, that if they sin against God, if they, are, if they are faithless, if they are unfaithful before God, God will discipline them in verse 8. But if they repent from their sin and turn to God and walk in his ways, he will restore them. Verse 9. You see, Nehemiah, as he prays before God, is banking on the fact that God is faithful to his promises. That God has promised. He, he, he is faithful to his promises to, to, to punish and discipline. He is, prom, he is faithful to his promises to bless and restore. And, and Nehemiah comes with the confidence in the promises of God. In the fact that God is faithful. God does not turn or go against his promises. He is not like man that he should lie, not like the son of man that he should break his promise. And so Nehemiah hangs in faith on the promises of God to restore the children of Israel. He comes to God and says, Lord, 
You've promised in your word that if we repent, you will restore us. That is faith. That is faith. Fifthly, it is a prayer of supplication. Notice that he, when he comes before God, he asks on the behalf of the people of Israel and on his behalf as well. Oh Lord God, verse 11, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Lord, please hear us. Please listen to our prayers. Please pay attention to our prayers. Lord, answer us. We see in this petition that Nehemiah was praying that Nehemiah is praying with a plan in mind. He knows that, as we saw in verses 1 to 4, that it is God calling him to do something about this. That God is not opening his eyes just to see the condition and look away. That God is calling him to do something about the condition of Jerusalem. And so he prays with a plan in his mind. This plan that Nehemiah had was a daring plan. It included the man who was responsible for the current state of Jerusalem. But he understood that God is sovereign and that the heart of man is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord and he tends it wherever he wishes. He understood that although Artaxerxes was king, God was their king. He, he, he prays, he says, give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. But this man is referring to the man that he's serving as his cupbearer, Artaxerxes. Sixth and last, it is a persistent prayer. It is a persistent prayer. The, the, the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 18 verse 1 that we ought to pray and not lose heart and the words of Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 17 that we are to pray without ceasing are true of the prayer of Nehemiah. It is a persistent prayer. It was not just a spare of the moment but something that was consistent. The first clue we see it in chapter 1 verse 1 and chapter 2 verse 2 verse 1. Notice what he says in chapter 1 verse 1, it was in the month of Kislev when, when, the report, when he heard the report about what was happening to Jerusalem. And, and Kislev is, is between is, is mid-November and mid-December, which is uh, in those dates. And, and now in chapter 2, when he approaches the king, it is in the month of in the month of Nisan. And Nisan is in mid-March and mid-April. So four months had passed since Nehemiah had the news. But he waited patiently for the Lord in prayer. He, he continued praying before the Lord. He, he prayed before the Lord in verse 6 and he says he prayed day and night. And this should be our attitude in prayer, right? We should constantly be in prayer. We should not wane and be weary when we are praying. There are some things that God will answer immediately when we pray for. There are some things that will take years when we pray for. 
We should pray for the salvation of our friends and our family members. We should, be, we should not be weary in being on our knees and committing them to the Lord in prayer. God might do it the next day or God might do it five years from now. But you must be constant in prayer. You must be marked by prayer without ceasing. Now, allow me to ask you this morning to interrogate you. Are you marked by a deep concern for God's people when they are in distress? When you see distress evident, when you see a need that is clear, are you marked by deep compassion and concern? Do you rejoice with those who are rejoicing? And do you weep with those who are weeping? Or are you indifferent and unconcerned with the distress of other people that you don't care what they are going through? You don't care and you don't even care to ask. Uh, people have, go have grown so hardened, even people in need, because they realize that the question, how are you, does not mean anything anymore. Does not mean anything anymore. They know that when you ask, how are you, you are expecting, I am fine, I'm good. You are not asking, how are you, because you are deeply concerned. You are asking, how are you, because it is, it is um, the manner in which we talk to each other. Are you marked by a deep concern? When, when, when Nehemiah asked, how are my people? How is God's city? He, he was a man who was asking, how is really my people? How are they really doing? What is the condition of Jerusalem? He, he, he was deeply concerned. Are you marked by such a concern? Does your concern for people who are in distress, people who are in need, drive you to your knees to pray for them? Are you marked by petitioning God on behalf of God's people, supplicating before God for the people? Plead with God to give you eyes that look to Christ who is marked by compassion for his people. Marked by compassion that when he saw his people in distress, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, the Bible says he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When he saw a widow who was mourning for his son in, in Luke chapter 13, chapter 7, verse 13, the Bible says he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. He, he was marked by deep compassion for his people, but ultimately, his com he, he is the expression and embodiment of the compassion of God. That when we were in the bondage of sin, when we were in distress and harassed by sin, when we were bound by darkness, he came to give his life as a ransom that we might be free. 
He did not say, looking at us in indifference, when we were in distress because of our sin, when we were in darkness because of our sin, you put yourself in that position. Deal with it. He did not say that. But he came from heaven to earth to show the way from the earth to the cross, our debts to pay, from the cross to the grave, and from the grave to the sky. Deep compassion for his people. He came to give his life as a ransom that we might be free. And not only that, but as his people, he daily intercedes for us. As Nehemiah interceded for the people of Israel, Christ intercedes for us daily. It is not a four-month thing. It is a daily thing. Romans chapter 8 verse 34 says he's at the right hand of God interceding for us. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 14 says he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And since he always lives to make intercession for us, that word always is very important. He does it always, making intercession for us. You see, our confidence, our security as believers lie in the fact that we have Jesus Christ as our Lord who is truly compassionate for us and daily makes intercession for us on behalf of the Father. You see, that is the great motivating factor to live as those who are sensitive to the needs of those around us, those who are sensitive to the distress of those around us, those around our city. We, we, we do not look at our city and say, look at the city in sin. Look at these prostitutes. Look at these people living in sin. Eh, when you see people living in sin, go evangelize them so that they may know God. When you see politicians living in corruption, it is not for you just to criticize and say how corrupt they are. Pray for them as the Bible calls you to pray for them. It bothers me that the involvement of Christians in politics today is about what party they belong to. Just because I belong in this party, then this person in this party, I hate them, I don't want them. Even when they become president, I will never pray for them. But I am not fulfilling my call as a Christian. Our involvement in politics, it doesn't mean that we, 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 we don't have opinions, right? It doesn't mean that we don't have political opinions. It doesn't mean that we don't have political affiliations. But even in our political affiliations and opinions, if, if the president is not in the party that you support, pray for the president. Paul called the believers to pray for Nero. Nero who was, who was persecuting and killing believers, and he says pray for those in authority. Middle-class Christianity has a problem. Middle-class Christianity needs to be reformed. Middle-class Christianity needs to, be, needs to repent from its self-centeredness. Middle-class Christianity is self-consumed.
We need to be a people that are motivated by the fact that Christ is compassionate toward us. That we seek the good of others through our acts of compassion. And most importantly, through giving them the good news of the Savior, who is the great comforter. And praying that God would open their eyes to the reality of who Christ is. Amen. Our dear Heavenly Father, put in us a heart that is that truly cares for your people. A heart that when it sees distress is driven to its knees in intercession. May we be like Nehemiah to have a heart for God's people. But moreover, may we be imitators of Christ who displayed ultimately compassion for us and continues to intercede for us. May you be blessed, O Lord, as you work in our hearts, as you convict us, as you comfort us. In the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.